There we go. There we go. All right, we're live. I hit the live button before we were supposed to be live. Okay, but we're live. All right. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8. Here we go. I'm going to open up the chat. Here we go. All right, Romans, chapter 8. Actually, I won't be able to look at it. I need my notes. All right. Romans chapter 8. Give me one second. Romans chapter 8. That's what happens when you hit the button before you're ready to go live. Uh, well, I'm going to be ready. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to be ready. I, I, I was like, I was just getting ready to step back. And the next thing you know, I pushed the button. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. We're live. The microphone wasn't even on yet. All right, Romans chapter 8. I... This one, this, I, I'm so, one of the things, probably the most frustrating thing about the entire COVID situation has been our study in Romans. Because you, you start a study one way, and then you revert back to, you know, doing basically a podcast episode, to revert back to in-person, to revert back to podcast episode, to revert back now to in-person. I feel like the whole series is just so disjointed and, 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 because it's, it, you teach in such radically different ways. When you're teaching back there and there's no one here, it's very, like even halfway through, it just feels like, okay, that's not working so good. Um, so hopefully we've accomplished something in our study in Romans. If you were listening this morning when I did another review on the Sermon on the Mount from the church in Council Bluffs, Iowa, you'll notice they quoted a verse in Romans chapter 8. And you also heard me almost throw everything in this church uh, across the room because they once again did something that I constantly yell about how Christians handle things. So let me explain. Um, in Romans chapter 8, go to Romans chapter 8, if you're not there, um, and let's remind ourselves of something. I'm going to ask some basic questions, try to get everyone on the same page, and then we're going to do our best to see how far we can make it this morning. All right? Romans chapter 8. All right, here we go. In Romans chapter 8, what is the key word in Romans chapter 8? Spirit. It's used about how many times? Night. Well, we, we have some disagreement, but I think 19 is what most sources say. 19. There may be more, but about 19, right? Uh, 19 times. So that tells us that what, the, the, what Paul wants to accomplish in Romans chapter 8 is to explain to us the importance of the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. And Christianity makes a very dogmatic claim about you as a Christian and the Holy Spirit. And what is that dogmatic claim that Christianity teaches in regards to you if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit? That he dwells us. Now let's see if you remember, in Corinthians, we have some scriptures that talk about us and the Holy Spirit. Does anybody remember where those scriptures are? Okay. What scripture? Well, you see if y'all can find it. Now, remember, last time I had to rely on someone listening to us to tell us, because nobody in our church got it right, which makes us look really bad to the people listening online. Okay? Something about the Holy Spirit and you, according to Corinthians, about your body, the temple. All right, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Let's look at it really quick. 1 Corinthians 6.19. I want everyone to remember this, okay, because this is very important, all right? 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, tells us this. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is where? In you, which you have of God, and you are not, what? Why am I no longer my own? Because God dwells in me. God moved in. He took over. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Now that's, that's the dogmatic claim that Christians make. Now what is the problem, what is the logical problem that arises from such a crazy claim? The problem is you claim that God lives in you and that person you work with who's not a Christian, they don't have God living in them. So there should be, you would think logically, a pretty big difference between me and them if God is dwelling in me. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean that God is indwelling us? What does it mean? What is the typically way, what's the typical way it's presented in almost every church in the United States of America other than this one? You now have a power. A power to do what? Not sin. Overcome sin or to keep the law of God. If you've been listening to my review of that, again, that series on the Sermon on the Mount, the, the pastor has stated, and today, I didn't finish the sermon uh, because I was going to have a seizure if I kept listening, but uh, because he kept saying, and he said that I think four times, maybe five times, Jesus came to make it possible for you to keep the law of God. Well, if that's true, then that should mean I should be able to keep it what way? Perfectly. But then he backtracked and said, you can't keep it perfectly. Well, if I can't, but yet he says that because of Christ, you and I can fulfill the law. Well, if I can fulfill the law, what's the only way you can fulfill the law? Perfectly. Imperfection is not fulfilling the law. So if Jesus came to make it possible that I can fulfill the law, then I would have to do it perfectly. And if I don't do it perfectly, then whose fault is it? Either it's Jesus not giving me enough power, or it's mine. And if, it, if you say it's my fault, why couldn't Jesus' power overcome me so that I would do it? So I don't get it. And then he goes on to say that the Sermon on the Mount is a test and if you don't, if, and, and it proves if your repentance is genuine. So if you don't keep the Sermon on the Mount, you're not a genuine Christian. The only problem is, he says we won't do it perfectly, yet he told me that Jesus gives me the power to keep it. So I, like by the time I'm done with that, I don't even understand, but that's the problem we come up with. So what do we have to figure out? What does it mean? Right? What does it mean? And why do I reject the standard teaching? I want to make sure everyone has, why do I reject the standard teaching? It's not shown. Any, any parent here who claims to have the Holy Spirit and claim that the, the Holy Spirit gives them the ability to be perfect, all I need to do is have you leave the room and interview your kids. Because your kids are going to tell me really quick, mom and dad are not perfect. Mom and dad sin this way, that way, they have bad attitudes. You could hear the things they say about you, pastor. You, all the things, like, they, would, they could probably give me a book. Right? And then, and, then, and then I can move the kids out, bring the parents in to tell me about the kids, and I'll find out that the kids are not perfect. Why? And, and, and people are like, well, no one's saying you can be perfect. Well, 
I don't, if I can't be perfect, then why is the Holy Spirit said to be the power that gives me the ability to be perfect? And you go, well, he doesn't give you the power to be perfect, so he gives me the power to be what? 10%, 20% better, 30%. Like, these are problems that we have to try to figure out. So I know, I know this raises all kinds of questions, and I know, look... I know that if you were to tell people what you're studying in this church, they're going to be like, that's insane. That's not a Christian church. But we have to, if we're not going to ask these tough questions, guess who, do, guess who asks these tough questions? Lost people. So why shouldn't we be asking the, church, the questions here? My atheist friends would ask that question. Well, you claim to have the Holy Spirit. Why don't you do it perfectly? Well, uh, I do just... You just don't understand, right? No, but no, 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 I have to say I don't. Well, if I say I don't, then they're like, well, I thought your God was powerful. So maybe we've misunderstood. I'm going to argue that we've misunderstood in a lot of ways. So what have we done so far? What have we looked at so far? What does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit mean? And, uh, and what, what does the Bible teach about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Now, let's remember, are we claiming we don't have the Holy Spirit? We're not claiming that. Because the scriptures are what? Clear. Clear. Dogmatic. But what does it mean that we have the Holy Spirit in us? That's what we're trying to figure out. So far, we've looked at how many things? <clears throat> Six things, Okay. Okay, uh, we're going to go through these again. Remember, we're just looking at different lists as different people have taught this and we're examining what other people have said. Does everybody understand that? All right, what was number one? <clears throat> what is the first thing? I'm going to lose my voice this morning. What's the first thing that people teach it means that we have the Holy Spirit? All right, the first thing is the indwelling of the Spirit comes to a soul dead in sin and creates new life. So, what is the first result of being indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Spiritual life. Spiritual life. Or what's another word you can put next to that? Regeneration. Regeneration. We are regenerated. I'm not going to go back to those scriptures. What does it mean to be regenerated? It means before my salvation I was spiritually dead and now that I'm saved I have spiritual life. Now, Does this mean perfection? Does this even make any claim about perfection? Does this make any claim that I have some supernatural power now? No. What does it it seem to indicate? That I should now be alive to God. And what what does it mean to be alive to something? Interest, desire, passion, hunger. Right? If I'm alive to something... It's going to be somewhat visible, yes? Does it mean moral perfection? No, does not. just means I'm alive to it. I desire it. I crave it. I'm interested in it. Look, someone who's, not, who's dead to God, they don't care. Are you going to find them reading the Bible? No. Praying? No. Going to church? No. Now, they may go just to go, but they're not, there's no desire there. Does that make sense? So... That's the first thing. To, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the thing that brings about spiritual life. What's number two? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit does what? Confirms that we now belong to Christ, 
right? And we are now a fellow heir with Christ. Remember Romans chapter 8, go back to uh, verse 15. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans 8, 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, what's the problem with this one? What's the problem with this one? Does anybody remember? Subjective to say, hey, because of the Holy Spirit, I know I'm a Christian because I have this internal testimony. That's how we usually teach it. What, how did I try to modify it a little bit? It is because of the Holy Spirit in me is the reason I cry out to God, Abba, Father. It's the reason I cry out to God, my Father, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's the reason we cry out to God as Father. It's what's the driving factor. If I don't have the Holy Spirit, I doubt I'm going to be walking around referring to, seeking God as Father. Now, this, this doesn't have anything to do with maybe, um, you know, we, we can get to all discussion about false religion, but you get the idea. Um, how, to, to get into some argument that it's the internal presence of the Holy Spirit that gives me assurance that I'm a, a Christian, that becomes a subjective mess. And there's no way to uh, unpack that. So everybody got that? So what's the first thing the Holy Spirit does for us? That, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives us life. Regeneration. Number two? Or you can just say it is by the Holy Spirit that we refer and call upon God as our Father. Right? It's the driving thing that leads us to call to God. God is our Father. All right? Now, again, there's lots of subjective things there, but at least we can do something with it. Does that say anything about having special power? Does that say anything about being, you know, have some moral power that you can keep God's law? No. So, so far we're okay. Right? Now, the second one is problematic, but at least it's not, you know, I, you look, if you want to say, well, the Holy Spirit tells me you're a Christian, well, then all day. Yeah, I guess you can say that. The problem is you're going to find three other people can make the same claim, right? And then you're going to say they're not a Christian. Well, then who's lying? It's subjective, and we don't like that, okay? Number three, what's the third thing? All right, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit places a member into the body of Christ. It puts the Spirit inside of us. Sometimes we refer to this as what? Go to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. First Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. It is through the, the Holy Spirit that we are placed into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit's in me. I'm in Christ. We're in the body of Christ. All right. Now, we can get to an argument all day about what that means, right? But what does it not mean? Does this say anything about your moral ability? No. Anything about special power? No. This is more about what? Your identity. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. This is more about my identity, right? In fact, you think about it. The first one is about life. The second one is about relationship. And the third one is about identity. Does that make sense? First one refers to spiritual life. The second one is now because I'm spiritually alive. Who am I spiritually alive to? 
my parent. Think of about it this way. When a child is born, right, they now have life. Now, at first, that life is pretty basic, right? They just cry for food. and whatever. But you wait for that magical moment when they say, Mama or Daddy, right? Well, spiritually, it's because of now that life and the spirit in me that I cry out, Abba, Father. And then the third is because of now this life that is in me and I'm in Christ, and now I'm identified with Christ. I'm in the body of Christ. So it's life, relationship, and identification. I think we can state it that way. All right, number four. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. But all these worketh that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Speaking of spiritual gifts. Now, we... Look, we could, we could talk all day about spiritual gifts. What, what is a spiritual gift? How do you know if you have a spiritual gift? And I hate that because it turns into, it almost feels like astrology. Oh, I'm, I'm in a Pisces, so I'm this. Or, and it's almost like you play these little games, and so everyone has their little chart going, well, my spiritual gift is this, and my spiritual gift is this. And it always drives me crazy because usually it's some, women seem to love it more than the men, but the woman going, hey, my spiritual gift is encouragement. And I'm like, you're the encourager? Well, you've done more discouraging to me in my life than anyone has ever done. So, but we all like to pretend that we have a certain spiritual gift. Sometimes it's just foolish, but here's the thing. Whatever, however the Holy Spirit gives out our spiritual gifts and whatever they may or may not be, we can argue that all day. That's not the goal of this sermon. This just simply identifies that if the Spirit is in me and he's the one who gives spiritual gifts, we can say amen to that, but what does that not have anything to do with? Not my ability to keep the law. It has nothing to do about having some supernatural power. So, so far we're okay, right? So far we haven't found anything that would cause us any problem. Yeah, right? Okay, now let's continue. What's the next one? All right, this... Uh, this is one that I completely reject, okay? Um, and how does, what does the number five say? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit does what? Gives a special insight into Scripture, and I put a big X next to this one. I reject this outright, completely. Where, where do Christians usually go to prove this point? What Scripture do Christians usually cite to prove this point? You need to know the scripture they use. I'm not going to give you the scripture that I have written down. I'm going to see if you can find one. And I know there's people listening who are probably going, well, how come your church doesn't know this? I don't know. Okay, no. I'm going to look. I'm going to look at the chat. Okay. All right, no, nobody's left a message yet. Okay, good. All right. Come on. What scripture do Christians use all the time to say that now that you have the Holy Spirit, you now can understand truth? It's in the Gospel of John which you should know because we covered the Gospel of John, and that the Holy Spirit's going to lead you somewhere into all truth. Okay, so what scripture is it? Is it John 8? It's Gospel of John. You may want to just look up truth real quick in a concordance and just see how it's used in the Gospel of John. Okay, what does it say? All right, there we go. There, John 16, 13, speaking of the Holy Spirit, saying that he's going to lead you into all truth. So Christians claim that for themselves, right? Sounds good. Now, 
What's the problem with that claim? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, you take all the churches in Abilene, we all claim to be Christians, all claim to have the Holy Spirit, and we can't agree on anything. So how is he leading us into all truth? So what do we think the, the, the actual understanding of that promise is there in John chapter 16? For the apostles who did what? Ah, they were going to be guided into old truth by the Holy Spirit because the Bible is written by inspiration. Now, oh, well, we, yeah, that's that one. We could we could almost make that one work, but this one, this no, the Holy Spirit does not guide us into all truth. I reject it outright, completely. It doesn't happen. So that promise is for whom? The, the I will say the writers of the New Testament primarily, and you could argue for the apostolic authority because that's what the what did the church rely on at the beginning? Could they go to the scriptures? No. no why? There weren't any other than the Old Testament. So who did they have to rely on? The apostles. So if you're going to rely on teachers, what kind of teacher do you want? The one that's getting guided into all truth by God. Right? What do you not have today? A teacher who can lead you into all truth because I'm being led into all truth. Unless you're a Catholic who believes the magisterium fulfills that promise. But we don't believe that. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. See, the Catholics claim that. See, the Holy Spirit says he's going to guide us into all truth. That's the magisterium. We have all truth. Well, we reject that. But then look at, when we reject it, did we get anything better? No, we got chaos. So no, I don't believe the Holy Spirit's guiding us into all truth. Okay, next. I know this is turning into all review and no actual moving forward, but that's okay. All right, next. Okay, now this one, go to Romans chapter 8. Again, back into Romans chapter 8. I know we're not going through this in our normal way because we're just trying to figure this out, all right? Go to Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit, see that? There's the Holy Spirit, also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what, to, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. What does that seem to imply? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us, what can the Holy Spirit do? Understands what we really are feeling. Nobody else can understand your feelings. Like teenagers say, Mom, you don't understand my feelings. Well, how can I? I'm not inside of you, right? Okay? And, and the mom can look at the teenager and go, You don't understand my feelings. Because guess what? They can't. Husband, you don't understand my feelings. Guess what? He can't. Right? Honey, you don't understand my feelings. Guess what? She can't. How come no one can understand your feelings? They're not in you, right? Okay, but guess who can? The Holy Spirit. And then guess what the Holy Spirit does with your feelings? Makes intercession. Makes intercession for you on your behalf. Isn't that good that someone's praying for you who can understand you? You can say, pray for me, and I can pray for you, but I can't pray for your feelings in the sense that I don't understand them. I can't. You, I can say I relate to them, but even if I say I relate to them, like I hate when people say I understand. No, you don't. Don't, don't ever say you understand anything because you don't. You don't understand how someone feels. There's no way. You say, I went through the exact same thing, but you're not them. So how they feel about it is different than I felt about it. 
You could take two kids. You take me and I talk to another teenager and like, man, my family, there's abuse. There's all this craziness. And I can be like, oh, I've been there. But guess what? I can't feel. I don't know how they feel about it. I don't know how they're processing it. I mean, you know, I ended up with a gun in my hand trying to put a bullet in my head. So that, I mean, I, I ended up in a place where not a lot of kids don't end up. Right? So different feelings. Guess who can, who can intercede on your behalf? Holy Spirit. That's the, that is something that we have that a lost person doesn't. What does it not have anything to do with? No power, no keeping the law, none of that. It's just the Holy Spirit interceding on my behalf. That's, that's good. I'm, I'm glad. Because sometimes I don't know what to pray or how to pray. Sometimes I don't know what to say. Thank goodness he, he can pray. And then he, because he's God, right, third person of the Trinity, can then pray to Christ, right? And guess what? His prayer is going to be probably a little better than mine. Does that make sense? All right, so interceding. All right, next. What's the next one? Good. Okay, that's what I wanted to hear. Okay, everybody, everybody's looking like, uh-oh, I must not have been paying attention. No, here's the next one. All right. Here's the one that everyone runs to. I'm going to quote it the way it is in one book. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit empowers the yielded believer to live for Christ, to do his will, and to lead him in paths of righteousness. All right, this is the one. This is the one. So according to this, the Holy Spirit does what? Empowers us to do what? To yield and to walk in the path of righteousness. To yield ourselves and to walk in paths of righteousness. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that is a good enough summary. Now this is where, this is why we've done this entire study is to get to this one. Does it sound good? Ever, and you've, trust me, everyone in this room has been guilty of sitting in a church and when a pastor saying this, you did what? Amen. Now, okay, right. Now, the problem is, you, you, for some reason, you didn't think about what was happening in your car on the way home when people were yelling and fighting and things weren't, and you're like, where's that power of the Holy Spirit? Like it lasted in the sermon, but it's not lasting in the car where we're fighting over what to have for lunch. Right? Or, or five, 30 minutes after you get home from church, you're having some fight with your kid or some arguments breaking out with your spouse. And Wait, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, honey. Wives should be, they should have been using this on their husbands. Hey, you should be perfect, right? Hey, you should be perfect. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. Why aren't you, aren't you a better husband? You have the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the husband can turn around and go, well, even the Holy Spirit can't overcome your nagging. Okay, that, no, that, no, that's not what the husband should say. That's not what the husband should say. But you get the idea, right? You get the idea. So, what do we do with this? All right, here we go. Now, remember, we're back. This is, this is what I love. This is my favorite thing, because we're all here. So now I can put you all on the spot, all right? Here we go. First, I want you to see what scripture you can find. All right. Now, those listening online, I know y'all hate when I do this. I know because you're like it's boring listening to silence. I, well, blame, don't blame me. Blame the people in my church because they should be faster. Okay. I want you to find a scripture that you think could be used to prove this point. That you now, because of you have the Holy Spirit, you have the power to yield. You have the power to walk in paths of righteousness because you have the power of the Holy Spirit. What scripture do you think can be utilized to prove this point? 
What scripture do you think could be used to prove this point? And even if you don't think it proves the point, what scripture do you think has been used, or you can think of one that you've heard used to prove this point? You don't even have, you don't even have to agree with it. Just one that you think, oh yeah, that, they, I've heard that one used. Oh, okay. So it's not one I thought of. That's good. Okay, what, what, where, where are y'all going? And I'm going to look at the chat, see if someone's throwing some scripture at us. Nope, no, not yet. Okay. Someone said Second Timothy. Okay, that's an interesting one. Uh, let's look at. Let's just look at that one. Okay, that's that's not one I would have used, but. Uh, Hey, that's, that's, this, is why, this is why I like having y'all look things up, because y'all give me something to think about. All right, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Okay, what? in verse 8, be not, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. All right, let's stop right here. Okay, now, this one would indicate what? Just look at the scripture. What would this one indicate? The, the Holy Spirit should give us some power. Okay. At love and a sound mind. So that does talk about something, doing something for us. But what's the power referencing here, you think? Overcome fear, fear of what? Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Persecution. Right? In other words, we can't, we can't expand because people use the word power and say, see, we got power, we got power. But the power here seems to be dealing with the power to overcome affliction and persecution. Correct? Now, you could argue that Peter wasn't so good at doing that. Now, some will say, well, that's because the Holy Spirit had come yet. All right, you can make that argument. So, you can make an argument. But if you do, the most we can get from this is power to overcome the fear of, of affliction. If we're going to be, or, or persecution, I think, is to be, it's to be fair. Okay, so this one is a good, this one would raise some questions, but it doesn't get us fulfilling the law, does it? No, 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 no way, shape, or form. All right? all right, anybody got a different one? That was a good one. That was a good one. Any, th- any other scriptures that people would use saying, see, you've got the power to do it. You've got the power to do it. You've got the power to do it. What do you think? See, what you should have done anytime in the past when you heard a sermon that made that claim, you should have been asking for all the scripture to back up said claim because, because you should have had those memorized because you're like, man, something's wrong here because I don't seem to have this power. What, what are the scriptures? Do I need to help you? Oh, don't say yes. Come on. Come on. Do college professors help you? Well, then they're bad college professors, okay? <laughs> they need to be fired, right? They shouldn't help you. They're there to make you do the work. And that's what my job is, to make you do the work. You don't want me to feed you and me teach you how to get food for yourself, right? Okay, nobody says amen. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no. That's an interesting one. Okay, you are going some weird directions, but that's okay. All right. I figured I'd go to one, one clear passage. 
Um, okay. Um, now, this is interesting. Uh, Luke 10, 19. Now, what's the context of Luke 10 before we look at it? Go back to verse 1. What's the context of Luke 10, 19? Look at verse 1 of Luke 10. Who's Paul? Or Paul? Who's, uh, who's Jesus speaking uh, to? The 70. So this is specific commissioning of the 70, right? And there's going to give them very specific things that they do, right? Look at verse uh, 4. Carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoe. Salute no man by the way. So in other words, don't take any money with you. Now nobody follows that, right? Hey, don't worry about money, don't worry about food, just go. Nobody does that. Even our missionaries don't. What do they do? They go around for 14 years trying to raise money because their local church won't support them to go to the mission. Don't even get me started on how missions work. I'll never understand that. Hey, well, I'm going to be a missionary. Well, there you go. Get a car, go drive around the country and try to raise money. And then, uh, you know, well, but no, why, why doesn't that local church get them on the mission field as soon as humanly possible? I don't understand. I, it makes no sense to me. But All right, but we don't follow that. So why don't we follow that? Because we would say that's applicable to whom? The 70, all right? So now go to Luke 10, 19. Same context, right? Yes? Yeah. Right? And then what does he say? The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. He said unto them, Behold, Satan is light. Uh, I, uh, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any man means hurt you. Clearly, I've been bit by enough scorpions to know that's not implicable anymore. Okay? I've been bit by way too many scorpions to know. It's painful. So guess what? That power there would be for whom? The 70. Well, okay, we, we got around that one. Okay? Any other scripture? That's good. These are ones. Okay, Acts 1.8. There we go. I figured someone would go there at some point. Acts 1.8. There's still one big one everyone's not quoting. Okay, Acts 1.8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. All right, how do we understand that power? What do you think that power is for? In context, it would seem power to be their witnesses. Now, you could argue, was was it specifically for them or for everyone, but is that power about keeping the law? Is that power about being more holy than anyone else? That's power about witnessing. So have we seen anything that says, hey, you have the power to keep the law yet? That Christ came to give you the ability to keep the law. Have you seen anything yet? All right, so give me, someone give me their best shot. What, do you, what, what can you come up with here? All right, here we go. Uh, someone listening online just sent us a message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. All right, this is good. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And he's probably going, what, why are they, where are they going here? Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. All of a sudden, 1 Corinthians disappeared from my Bible. No, here it is, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <laughs> There's nothing worse when you're like, where did it go? Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them 
that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, I will argue that power there is not referring to the power of the Holy Spirit in us, but it's referring to the power of what? Well, look carefully at it. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is found in the cross that we preach. Right, okay. So that one would have nothing to do with, that, that one would not cause us any problems, correct? We believe the preaching of the cross is powerful because what Jesus did on the cross was powerful. Right, right. Okay, is there another one? Anybody can think of another one. Right, that, that one was good. And I'm glad people are, looking up, uh, people are looking up verses that have the word power in it, which is good. How about this? Let's try this one. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. All right, Galatians chapter 5. Everybody there? All right. Galatians 5.16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you would do the things that you, you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The works of the flesh, and it gives the works of the flesh. And then look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. All right, this is the go-to passage. This is the go-to passage. Now, I want you to look at it. I want you to think about this. All right, so you're sitting there. You listen to your pastor. He preaches Galatians to you. And he says, because of Galatians, you now have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the works of the flesh. You can do it. All right, what do you see there that would offer any thoughts on how to understand it? What do you see there? First, does it speak of it as a guarantee? It's conditional. What's the condition? I got to walk in the Spirit. And if I walk in the Spirit, what will I not do? I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Go back to Romans chapter 7, verse, I believe, 25. The Apostle Paul speaking. Well, that's before verse 25. I think it's verse 25. Paul, and I think in verse 24, talks about, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And then verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, or something along those lines. Right, I'm paraphrasing. For I myself, with my mind... Serve the law of God. But what do I do with my flesh? Boy, Paul, he just think that he's delivered from the body of death by Christ and then he just acknowledged that in his mind, whatever how that means, whatever, how, however we understand that, whatever that means, that he's going to serve what? The spirit, somehow in his mind, however we understand that, but what is he going to do with his flesh? Serve the law of sin. Is that not how it reads? So what does that mean? Does that seem that what does Paul seem to be acknowledging? That even even with the deliverance of Christ, he's still going to do what? Struggle. So when we get to Galatians, how do we under that's that's the same human author, right? 
So what is Paul seeming to be saying? Walk in the Spirit, I'm not going to fulfill the law, law of the flesh. However, there's, there's a couple of ways of understanding that. What could that possibly mean? Think of some possible interpretations of this. What are some possible ways to interpret this? What do you think? What are some possible ways? Okay, we could look at it. We'll go with, with, we'll go with Steve and what he's kind of getting at there. Well, that we could go with this idea. That it is possible for you and I to walk in the Spirit and actually overcome the flesh. And it, it's not going to be constant because we have to walk in the Spirit, but it's something that we can do and, and do it. But we're not going to do it perfectly. All right? Well, even if we say we, we can do it, it's conditional, number one, Right? It's conditional. And number two, there's nothing in that passage that says that we can do it perfectly. Correct? In fact, Paul would seem to indicate that we can't. Correct? So you've got to be very careful saying you have the power to do it. The best you could say is you have the power available, but it's conditional upon you doing it. But that's still problematic. Why? Because then why hasn't anyone taken the opportunity to use that power to be perfect? That, that doesn't seem to work. What's the second way of pops, possibly interpreting it? There's the first way. What's the second way of interpreting it? Second way, possibly, and I'm not saying this is perfect. Listen, I'm not saying this is perfect, but we just got to work through this. this. This is what this whole, remember, all of Romans 8 is about what? That we now live our life in the Spirit. And everyone thinks that that means so many things, but nobody ever bothers to come back and check up why it's not working the way we claim. I'm not, I don't want to sell something that nobody's ever going to experience. Because that leads people to become disillusioned with Christianity. Right? They get discouraged. I mean, I know early in my Christian life, I thought I could pull all of this off because that's how it was, was sold to me. And then you realize that you fail so much that you just give up. Right? And I'm like, there's got to be a better way. There's a second way we could try to work around this. That I walk in the Spirit in what way? Christ is in me, the Spirit is in me. Right? Or, as Paul said, in my mind. In other words, in my position, I walk in the Spirit. And in my Spirit, in my position, what do I not do in my position? I don't fulfill the lust of... Now, I know that clearly it's referring to a practical application, but I'm just saying, we can at least know positionally, I do walk in the Spirit, because I'm in Christ, Christ is in me. Does Christ fulfill the lust of the flesh? Did Christ fulfill the lust of the flesh when he was on earth? No, he did not, right? And guess what? His practical and passive, his passive and active obedience is accredited to my account. So in Christ, in the Spirit, I don't do any of those things. That is true. I'm not saying that's what Paul has in mind here, but it's true. Correct? Right? What's a third possible way of looking at it? Is there a third possible way of looking at it? What's the first possible way? It's available, conditional, and clearly no one seems to be able to ever have ever been able to pull it off perfectly. So at that point, you have to figure out what, what does that mean? All right? Secondly, it's fulfilled in my position. We can agree with that. What's a third possibility? I think the third possibility is this. And every Christian, right? 
there are two realities that are true at the same time. We have a new nature. We have the Holy Spirit in us. But what still remains in us? The old nature. And that sometimes we are walking in the Spirit and we gain some temporary victory over a certain thing for a period of time. But what still is still present? The old nature. And think about where Galatians ends up. Galatians 5 says, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? It gives us what the lust of the flesh is, correct? Then it gives us what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? Are those two very contradictory to one another? Yes. And then what happens immediately in chapter 6, verse 1? <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? After Paul just said, hey, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, immediately in chapter 6 is someone overtaken and probably what fault? One of those sins of the lust of the flesh. Why would he have to go Galatians 6 if we can do it? Because I think, the re- here's the reality. Do we have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do we have an old nature? Yes. Do the two com- fight one another? Yes. The flesh is willing, or the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Those two realities. So, we, so to say that, you, that Christ came to give you the ability to keep it is somewhat a denial of the reality. If Christ came to give me the ability to keep it, then what would he have to have done? Eradicate what? The old nature. We don't believe the old nature is eradicated. Because if we do, then sinless perfection is possible. Can I say, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Yes, I can can say that. The reality is, it's a temporary thing. Because what's still going to be present in you? The sin nature. So you can have at times levels of victory, but it's an ongoing process. It's not some guarantee. It's something you have to continue to struggle with. I don't believe you now have some supernatural power, but even if you want to say it's power, it's not some guarantee. It's we're walking. It's a, it's a battle. It's a struggle. Because you've got two things competing. I know when you say that, uh, there's, there's plenty of people who'll, who'll e- email me and say, no, 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 no. You're talking that Christians are somehow schizophrenic. I'm going to argue we are. And the reason I'm going to say we are, Paul sounds pretty schizophrenic at the end of Romans 7. In my mind, in my mind, he does what? Follows the law of Christ. But in my flesh... He serves the law of sin. Does that not sound schizophrenic? And then what does he say? Therefore, in chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation, what? In Christ. Not because of my ability to keep the law or I have the power. No, because of Christ. Now, do I have the Holy Spirit in me? I will not deny that. The Bible is dogmatic. Does it seem to imply that if I will... Walk in the Spirit that I can have some kind of victory? It does seem to imply that. But what also seems to be implied? That the flesh is still there, and as a result, guess what's going to have to happen at times? Galatians 6, which calls for restoring such a one who has fallen. You need restoration, I need restoration. Why is there a chapter on restoration after seeming to imply that we can do it? Because clearly, Paul doesn't think that we can do it anywhere close to perfectly. And if we can't do it perfectly, do you see the danger of then looking at your imperfect life as proof of your perfect salvation? 
Because an imperfect life could never prove a perfect salvation. What's the proof of a perfect salvation? The perfect salvation, which is whom? Christ. So this one, I think, is very problematic. And we're going to have to stop right there. We'll just mention the next one, okay? All right? Um, the next one is the indwelling spirit gives, uh, produces spiritual fruit. We'll stop right there. The, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit produces spiritual fruit. And we know where to go with that one. Galatians 5, and you know that spiritual fruit. Which is, can you name them? Well, you know the first one. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Right? Okay, yeah, get, get to it. Goodness. Meekness, temperance. Okay. Self, is, uh, self-control, is it mentioned there? Maybe, maybe I'm thinking from a different translation. But you get love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Just think of the basic ones. That's, that's what the fruit of the Holy Spirit should produce in, in us. Does it ever do it perfectly? Clearly not. Right? Do we ever love perfectly? Do we ever have perfect joy? Perfect peace? Are, do we have, are we perfect in long-suffering? No. Why? Because the, law, the flesh is still in us. And what does the flesh fight against? The spirit. Hey, look, there's no, look, if we don't believe in this internal conflict inside of us, then you're living in a land of denial. And so it's weird how Christians are like, on one hand, you've got the power to do it. And then like, but you don't have the power to do it. Okay, well, I, I, don't, I think we've got to be careful how we state what power we have. Whatever power we have, there's something inside of it fighting against that very power. Does that make sense? I think we have to understand that. All right, we'll stop right there. Okay, so let's, uh, we'll, we'll review real quick. Number one, what was number one? Because we have the Holy Spirit, number one? Regeneration, Regeneration life. That's dogmatic. We all have spiritual life if you're a Christian. Number two? It's by the Holy Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. All right, so we have life, relationship, third, that we're in the body of Christ. Our identity, number four, spiritual gifts. All right, we can call this equipping, right? Number five, special insight. We reject that outright. We don't even quote that one. Number six, okay, that one's great. Makes intercession, right? Interceding on our behalf. That's wonderful. Next. And powers and yield. And how do we want to classify that one? We just want to, we want to say that the Spirit is present in me. Yielding to that Spirit can produce spiritual victory. However, the, the flesh is still in me. And, and in Christ, though, I do overcome all the flesh in my position. Right? So I don't know how you want to write that one out. There's a lot of factors we have to put into play. There. We just got to be careful how we sell it. Does that make sense? We sell it. It's like, you know, watching one of those info commercials and they sell the product like it can accomplish everything and you get it and it doesn't quite live up to the promise, right? Well, we sell Christianity in a way that doesn't live up to the promise. And I think a lot of people who've experienced it become very frustrated. Unless you have to live in a land of denial, claiming that you have something that everyone knows you don't have. It's like, yeah, you, you've got that power. Yeah, all right, all right. Yielding can produce spiritual victory. Yeah, that, I wouldn't say righteous, but 
It's temporary, clearly. And it's conditional. It's conditional. Clearly that passage makes it conditional. I've got to walk in the Spirit. Whatever that means, I don't know. I've got to walk in, I've got to walk in, in line with the Spirit. Nobody's even going to come close to doing that perfectly. Paul seems to say the only place that he, in a sense, walks in the Spirit is in his mind. Right? And that's what he says in 725. He serves Christ in his mind, but in his body he doesn't. So we've got to somehow, re- like, I keep going back to Romans 725 because that's how Romans 8 is set up. Paul's like, the things I don't want to do, I don't do. The things, you know, the things I uh, want to do, I don't. He, he talks about the struggle. Then he says, who, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? He says, Jesus Christ delivers me. And then he immediately turns around and says, in my mind, I'm going to follow him, but in my body, I'm not. How do we, how do we ignore that verse? So whatever else we understand, we can't ignore Romans 7. Does that make sense? Like uh, today in that Sermon on the Mount that I reviewed, uh, he quoted Romans 8, 4. Remember that verse? Everybody see it? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That pastor who preached that sermon, he said that because Jesus came to give you the ability to fulfill the righteousness of the law in your life. Exactly. But I would say that the way we fulfill, I think Romans 8, the only way to understand Romans 8 is back to Romans 7.25. How do I walk in the Spirit? In my mind. How do I fulfill the righteousness in Christ? That's Because there's no way I will ever fulfill the righteousness of the law in me. Even if I walk in the Spirit, it's not, it's going to be, because to fulfill the righteousness of the law would demand perfection. That's what we have to realize. Walking in the Spirit, you're never going to do it perfectly because the flesh is still there. Right? We, I, we just can't deny the internal conflict. That's why Christians, that's why we look like hypocrites. Because we are. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Lincoln knows, because your mom and dad are hypocrites, aren't they, Lincoln? He's like, yeah, you live in my house, you'll see some hypocrites. I know, buddy, I'm sorry. Okay, we'll go call uh, CPS after church. Right? But, um, no, but guess what? Every, the people sitting next to you are hypocrites. The people sitting in front of you are hypocrites. The one preaching to you are hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. And to claim that we're not is a lie. Because, because we believe a certain thing, a certain morality, and do we follow it? We fall short of it. Now, the one way to remove our hypocrisy is to admit that, okay? Because hypocrisy is pretending to be something you're not. Just admit that. But we sell Christianity. He's like, look, if you were like us, you'd have the Holy Spirit. And guess what? You become a Christian, you won't have that struggle anymore. You become a Christian, you won't struggle with that anymore. Why do we ever say that? And it's usually about sins we don't struggle with. Oh, you struggle with homosexuality. You become a Christian, you won't struggle with it anymore. Of course, because you don't. But how come you still struggle with your, your sins? Oh, yeah. gluttony, lying, slander, lust, yeah, all the other things. Because guess what? It doesn't magically go away. And to deny that. And I, it, the, now, if I can walk in the Spirit, I can have some victory. I won't deny that. But man, nobody has ever been able to figure out how to walk in the Spirit other than one person. Jesus Christ, who walked in the Spirit perfectly. And guess what I have in Christ? All spiritual blessings. So that blessing would be Christ. Christ, and I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh 
and him, right? Only in my position can I have this experience. All right? I know that sounds like a defeatist. I, I know that Pel- this is what ticked off Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius thought that uh, Reformed people or Augustine was teaching a defeated kind of Christianity. And Pelagius was like, no, you don't have a sin nature. You can do it. Because he didn't like, he thought that we were making excuses. No one's making excuses. The reality. Did Pelagius' system create better godly Christians? No, it didn't. You know why? Because you can deny the reality all day, but it's there. You can pretend all day, running around saying, we have power, we have power, we have power. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and my position, right? Do I? I believe, I believe so. I don't, I, 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 believe, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to repeat a historical fact unless I have it in front of me, unless I can 100% dogmatic. But yeah, yeah, you do a lot of things to, to, to make the situation better for you, I guess. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Uh, Lord, we didn't answer all the questions about this, and I know it's difficult trying to put this all back together after all of the delays and, and all of the different ways, but I pray that we can at least leave here this morning with trying to wrap our mind around the fact that, yes, the Spirit is in us, But at the same time, sin is in us. And we've got to be able to acknowledge both realities and deal with the difficulties that these realities present. Let us never be afraid of asking these tough questions, even if it makes everyone else mad. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.